Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. He who fears being conquered is sure of defeat, is a quote from the French military and political leader Napoleon Bonaparte, who rose to prominence during the French Revolution and was emperor of the first French empire. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, someone who reached the pinnacle of their craft as a leader with the right team, preparation, discipline, courage, focus, and confidence. Our guest today is Nick Farr-Jones, AM, Director of Tourist Funds Management. Nick debuted for the Wallabies in 1984, making 63 appearances, 36 of those as captain between 1988 to 1992 including Australia's first Rugby World Cup success in 1991. He is also chairman of Stand Tall, a charity that supports the mental well-being of Australian youth. He has previously served on the boards of NRMA and Wesley Mission, been a councillor of the City of Sydney, a senator of the University of Sydney, and chairman of New South Wales Rugby Union. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite, world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Italy, Fiji and Chile, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, we not only look back at the success of Australia in the historic 1991 World Cup, but also the key moments, years in the making, for Nick and the team, building character and resilience and striving for consistency at an elite level that led to ultimate glory. He shares of us the highlights of an illustrious career that is extended beyond the confines of the pitch as a lawyer, banker, and ambassador of the sport, and a striking similarity gleaned from an encounter with Sir Edmund Hillary. So sit back and enjoy. Don't look at the scoreboard. Nick, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Greg. Nick, you're 29 years old, and you're coming off the ground in the second half in the 1991 quarterfinal against Ireland in the World Cup. You're coming off with a knee injury. You're captain. Ireland score, four minutes left on the clock. You're sitting in the grandstand. Wallabies get the ball. Scrum set. 15 metres out from the Irish try line. There's a set play being called. 
What were you thinking sitting there in the stands? Mate, I was thinking with, um, well, by that time, I mean, the Irish scored, as you said, with four minutes to go. Um, that was probably 90 seconds to go. Scrum was in front. Leadership's an interesting thing. I reckon I would have put Michael Liner, my number 10, in my back pocket. I would have hit him and I would have said, Noddy, put a drop goal over and we'll go into extra time. Um, okay. But it was interesting because Michael had taken over the captaincy. I, as you say, went off after 20 minutes with a recurring knee injury. Michael decided to do things differently. We'd practice until our noses bled a move in the back line, yep. which was cut one double loop. Michael Liner, Jason Little going around, Tim Horn. It didn't work to perfection, but it worked well enough that Campo was able to get a ball to Noddy, uh, Michael Liner, and we went over, and I suppose the rest is history. I say about the leadership because for two years leading into that World Cup, or at least 18 months, we'd worked on process get the process right, the scoreboard looks after itself. And Michael Liner had the the nerve as the guy who was calling the shots in my absence to call that move. Had it not come off, we would have been on a plane home the next day. I would have retired without doubt, and I'd still be looking at cracks in the ceiling getting wider at uh, 60 years of age at 2 a.m. in the morning. What's the essence then of captaincy? Oh, there's a million things that go into it, and and I think you've got to be yourself. Um, when I first took over the captaincy, you know, I, I would have thought my cab was parked about eighth in the rank. Never gave it a moment's thought, even though I'd sort of captained my school teams and my club team. But Bob Dwyer even didn't he didn't talk to me. You know, when he took over from Alan Jones in 1988, he was Ramwick, I was Sydney Uni. I didn't know Bob Dwyer. I was in Monaco of all places with my wife playing a sevens tournament and we got a phone call from my mother-in-law of all people who'd listened to the midday news and she'd heard that I'd been made captain. So it's a bit of a bizarre story, but Bob Dwyer didn't even call me to say, Nick, I'm, I'm thinking of making you captain and having a chat and let's go and have a coffee or a lunch. Uh, he just picked me. And um, I, I think I made some mistakes early on when I thought, golly, I'm not the most entitled person or the the most senior person to captain this Australian team. And so I thought about what my predecessors did, Andrew Slack, Simon Poitovan, Steve Williams. And I think I made some mistakes in the early years. Um, I, I, I probably changed from the natural person and natural leader that, you know, Bob saw in me to a person who was perhaps a little fake. And um and I realised that I was selected because someone saw leadership qualities in me and I just had to let it flow out. And there's a million things that go into leadership. Um, it's experience. It's it's leading by example. I mean, I was pretty good at that because I was a swimmer when I was young, twice a day. Yep. When I was three hours on a train, I went to middle distance running. Perfect backgrounds for working your ass off. I love working my ass off, so I was always good at setting the example. I, I was an absolute stickler for training and getting things right. I used to get very annoyed if guys were lackadaisical around training, dropping balls, you know, just laughing it off. That could really fire me up. Um, so I was a stickler for, you know, perfect practice, you know, avoids piss-poor performance. Um, I think that's a part of leadership, but it's also understanding – you know, the importance of people, the importance of culture, the importance of leading, the importance of 
humility in success, the importance of learning from mistakes and never forgetting those disappointments. And, you know, I, I suppose the most important thing is that team spirit aspect. And it comes from many ways. It comes from making everyone feel involved in what you're going after, the vision, the mission, the goals that you're setting, you know, whether they're weekly, monthly, yearly. There's a million aspects to to leadership, but I think the most important is is the team spirit, which comes from understanding people, irrespective of what their title is. You know, they don't have to take their boots to the game. They can be the gear steward. It doesn't mean that they're any lesser a person in your in your team. And, you know, if we go back over the years, I'm pretty proud of the way we we looked after the whole team. And I think also yeah, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead when it's time to prepare. Yep. But it's what we call the on-off button. Switch the button on to off. Enjoy the wonderful opportunity of traveling the world and enjoying the hospitality of countries you're in. Enjoy a beer with your mates. Um, the only rule we had was when it's time to switch it back on to on. Yep. You know, at seven o'clock the next morning when you're going out to train, just don't do anything when it's on off, you know, when you're having some fun. Yep that's going to jeopardise or, or downplay what you've got to do when it's on on, you know, when it's time to prepare to strut your stuff. Who's driving that? Is that the coach? Was that the, oh, is that look, the captain it's a bit of everyone. I mean, I, the great thing about my 91 World Cup team was that we had a lot of leaders. Okay. Took a lot of pressure off me. Um, but remember, Greg, I played in the amateur days. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, Go on. Yeah. So you could, you could agitate, you could debate. Bob Dwyer, my coach and I, we – agitated a lot. We we debated, we argued, we always got on the same page, but it wasn't like I'm challenging Bob with a, in the back of my mind, gee, I hope I get selected and I get my next contract for the next three years. It wasn't my livelihood. I was mm. a lawyer when I was a player. Yep. So, you know, it was a natural thing to do. I, I, I see captain coach very much like chief executive chairman okay. in that way. And so, you know, I, I think the job of a chairman of a corporate is very much to to question the chief executive about his strategy, about his game plan, about his execution policy or the way he's going to execute it and challenge it. That is the job of a chairman and the non-executive directors. And, you know, you have to challenge that and you have to make sure that everything that's in the game plan going forward for the corporate is backed up by full studies and, and full assumptions that are acceptable and the chairman's job is to do that and and that's very much what i saw well i I was the chief executive bob was the chairman the way i saw it okay but when you started off you had a good win against england when you skipper lost the bledisloe and what year are you talking about greg 88 oh okay when i started the skipper skipper. yeah 89 we lost to the british lions okay pressures on 1990 yeah bledisloe down 2-0 yep is it true you jumped in for a swim? After Wellington. Yep. So when we won. Yep. Yeah. That's true, is it? Well, Tim Horan and I, we we were in a place uh, called the Mondesir. That was the name of the pub on the north shore of Auckland. And Timmy came up to me as, as, as Tim's want. You know, he was only sort of about 18 or 19 back then. And he said, Far, um, you know, we're playing at Eden Park. He said, if we get up and the hotel was on the, the north shore and on the water. Yep. He said, what about we have a dip tonight? We didn't win that day we went close but we went on to win a week later in wellington and tim came up to me you know my wife was there um you know celebrating in whatever place we were at you know 12 o'clock and he said hey far 
how about we follow through on what we promised in Auckland and Wellington? I mean, Wellington's on a harbour, so yep. at about one or two in the morning, yeah, we went over and had a dip. The pressure at the time, Nick? Yeah, no, it was, it, it was, it was mints. Yeah, um, okay. Because you're not getting the wins, you're your captain. No, no, Greg, the, the, the problem was the inconsistency. Okay. And then that frustrated the hell out of me. And, um, you know, as you rightly recall, we, we had one great match against the All Blacks in, in 88 in Brisbane. We drew that. We should have won. We had two lousy matches at that unloved inner western ground called Concord Oval. The greatest frustration and the only thing that, you know, here as I talk to you at the age of 60, 30 30 years into retirement, you get one roll of the dice against the British Lions. You know, the team made up of England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. They only come to Australia every 12 years. We beat them four tries to nil in Sydney Football Stadium. I think it was the first time we played at at Moore Park, Um, playing fantastic rugby, great defence. We went up to Brisbane, got bashed up, lost by, I think, five or six points, and then the deciding test. You know, people always talk about the Campisi incident at the end when we – we led Campo, you know, sort of as was his want, and I'll totally defend that, and I'll go to my grave, you know, and, and I was vindicated because what happened in 91. You know, Campo probably should have done something differently, but he was never going to die wondering if he could beat the tackle. So he set off upfield, tried to beat some tackles, didn't, got himself in trouble, threw a ball to a unsuspecting Greg Martin, and the rest is history. They won. But the disappointment about that was – the inconsistency of the performance. Mm. And particularly then when we went to France, beat the French by about 25 points in Strasbourg. Seven days later, we're going to become the first Australian team to win a series on French soil. Never happened before. And we played like busted bums. We made a million mistakes and we handed the game to the French. And it was after that that we went away for a weekend, coach, assistant coach, captain, vice-captain, and we pulled corks out of red wine bottles. We looked at the last two years of inconsistency, and we actually came up with a well-devised plan as to changing the culture of the team. Talk us through that. As I said, we looked at those two years yep. and the performances that I've just talked about. Yeah, and, and you've got a very good team. Particularly the French second test. Yep. For some reason, we didn't play a test in Paris. It was up in Lille. Lille is in you know, the, the northern part of France yep. where, you know, we had so many Anzac sacrifices. It's a, you know, I lived in Paris for four years yes. when I joined Societe Générale, a French bank. I've been up there many times. I went there, took my young kids to, you know, to the Anzac Day, you know, Villa Bretonneur and all that. The particular day that we played that second test was the 11th of the 11th. It was Remembrance Day. Yep. Yeah. And it was very moving. And... The great Bob Templin, who we lost too long ago, um, back in about 2000, 2001, he, we went to Villiers-Bretonneux. We, he read the Ode to the Fallen. We went out that day. The French had made eight changes to their team, including dropping the, you know, the mercurial Serge Blanca. To cut to the chase, and it's a long time ago, we made a million mistakes. They beat us by about four points. And on the long flight home, I remember being very emotional. It was the end of two days of very inconsistent performance, some fantastic games and some very lousy games. I got pretty emotional and I wasn't sure that I was a good captain and I wasn't sure that captaincy helped my game. And I'd drunk too much on the plane home. And about four hours out of Sydney, I went up to my coach, Bob Dwyer, and said, Bob, I've been giving this a lot of thought in the last day. Um, Can you find yourself another captain? I don't think I'm good at it. Um, I think it, 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 it negatively impacts my game. And about an hour and a half out of Sydney, Bob given a, a couple of hours of thought and he said, Nick, um, 
He said, if there's a camera or a microphone when we get home, please don't say anything. <laughs> um, don't get emotionally. knew I'd probably had a couple too many drinks. He said, what I've thought of doing, and we did, was Tempo, Bob, Michael, Lyon, and myself, we went away to the Gold Coast for a, a weekend. And what we actually very quickly, Greg, came up with, I mean, it was a lot of looking at video, trying to analyze our emotions that day, particularly in Lille, but also during the Lions matches. You might think after beating them by 25, 30 points at Strasbourg in the first test that the problem was complacency, but it was, it was quite the reverse. We were too desperate to win. Yeah, there's an art of winning, isn't there? Yeah, well, we were desperate to win. Every time we got near the line, we wanted to get the ball over the line. It's what they call in sort of under 10 rugby, white line fever. Yep. Kids get close to the line. They forget every aspect of structure, every aspect of what they've been taught. And they just look at the white line and try and get across. And it often results in mistakes, drop ball, handing it over to the opposition. We, as the best rugby team in Australia, were guilty of the same thing. What we tried to and, and effectively did after about six months was introduce what we called get the process right. Mm -hmm. Try and ignore the scoreboard. It's bloody difficult when you're playing a World Cup final against the English at Twickenham to yes. ignore the scoreboard because there's only going to be one winner. There's only going to be one team that's remembered. And people will often say, well, what's process in rugby, Nick? And it goes way beyond the 80 minutes. But I think one of the unique things about rugby, there's a position for everyone. You know, when I came into the game at the age of 13, 14, where do I play? It was easy. The little kid, here's a number nine jersey. You know, every body shape has got a, a position in the team. And there's often quite different roles that you have to play. And so me as a scrum half, what's my job? Of course, it's my bread and butter, which is my passing, the speed of my passing, the accuracy of my passing. It's my defensive game, my organization of the defensive people around me. It's my short side game. It's my kicking game, my offensive and defensive kicking. It's my lateral vision, which is really critical because I get first use of possession often. So nine and a half times out of 10, my judgment's got to be right. Yep. I need to know where the black jerseys are and where the gold jerseys are. I need to know where the space is. When I'm confident, I can see 270 degrees. When I lose confidence, the lateral vision comes in. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And um, so they're all the aspects of my game. So process for my game in the 80 minutes, and as I said, it goes way beyond it. It's everything you do in preparation. But that process for me is doing those roles as well as I possibly can, including communicating with all the critical people around me and forgetting the captaincy role, which is another thing on top of that. Yep. It's minimizing the errors, okay? It's trusting the 14 people around me to do exactly the same thing. In my day and amateur days, you, you didn't get replaced voluntarily. You had to have a medically verified injury. It's trusting those 14 around me in all their distinctive roles in the game to do exactly the same. And then at the end of the 80 minutes, look up and see what the scoreboard tells you. As I said, Greg, it's bloody hard when you're playing a World Cup final or you're in a Bledisloe Cup clash or you're playing the Springboks. And did we get it overnight? No, nah, it took us probably six months. But the last 25 tests that I played in the early 90s, I think we won about 21, 22 of those games. We became a very consistent team, and I put it down to you get the process right, the scoreboard looks after itself. So the old discussion, Nick, is it the best team of individuals or the best team? It's the best team, but the best team has to be made up of great individuals. So I mean, Bob Dwyer rightly said, Greg, that to win a World Cup, you need five guys in your 15 that'll pick themselves in a World 15 yep. automatically. Right. You need five guys on the fringe of that team, and you need five guys that will 
absolutely pick themselves automatically in a national 15. And that's about what we had in 91. You know, we were gifted with that. I mean, I can talk this process thing, you're, you're, yeah. you're in search and what have yeah. you. I can talk it across a, a whole bunch of range. I mean, golf, I love golf. Yep. How many times, you know, I don't play a lot, so I might have got to the 13th hole and you think you're going to break 80 for the first time and all of a sudden you start to think about the scoreboard, breaking yeah. the 80. Five holes later, you're lucky to break 90. It, it's like when I was a young lawyer. I'd go into the senior partner's office at the end of the financial year. Yep. You know, for my annual review, I can still remember going into Mr. Holton's office at, on Bly Street where you work. And, yeah. you know, he'd basically do the annual review and it'd take 10 minutes. You know, he'd basically say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've made budget this year. Yep. Because of that and, you know, the prospects in front, I've decided to increase your budget by 20%. I mean, I'd crap myself, Greg. Hmm. How am I going to do that? But if you follow the process, which unfortunately in law is accounting for every six minutes of your day, it's called a worksheet, a timesheet. Yeah, yeah. yep. um, and if you do that, get the process right, at the end of 30 June, bang, you know, you've, you've, you've made budget. I mean, uh, one of the stories well, this is, I love- This is the old saying almost going back to basics, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So, Absolutely so, and, it is. And, but and but minimizing the errors, yep. doing your job as well as you can. I mean, the days when we played the All Blacks, we all know the All Blacks in the last- four or five months, have had unprecedented losses. Yep. You know, they've probably lost 75% of their games. When I played them, and I'm not saying it was harder when I played them, don't get me wrong, but I, I seriously remember you wouldn't count the mistakes they made on one hand. And now you're seeing them sometimes making 10, 12, 15 mistakes. Mm. But that's what it is, minimizing the errors. I mean, that in that World Cup in 91, we conceded one try in the quarterfinals, semifinals, finals. Yeah. That, that's what it is. It, it's, it's not making errors. It's, it's simplifying things, but it's doing things that individually, and then it becomes collectively, if all the 15 do it together, doing things as well as you can. And and that comes into all those aspects that I talked about my game. Hmm. For the number one, they're, they're totally different things that he's got to do. But he knows what he's got to do. And, and he's trained to do that. And he's prepared to do that. For me, there's no example like it that Sir Anthony O'Reilly, the great Irish rugby player, winger and British Lions, and you know he, he owned Waterford Wedgwood, he owned independent newspapers, a great rugby man, a great businessman. He ran Heinz for 30 years. But he invited me, I was lucky enough, I think it was 2007, to join a bunch of his advisory board mm -hmm. for the third test in Auckland against the um, British Lions. So this was when the Lions toured New Zealand for three tests. Yep. Last test at Eden Park. You know, we had a fantastic few days. And at the end of the match, who should come into our box for a beer? And I got chatting with him, but Sir Edmund Hillary. Oh, right. And I was an amazing admirer of Hillary and what he did, you know, being the first to go up the mountain. And I'd read a biography and I got, I introduced myself. We had a beer. He was in his 80s back then. And from memory in 2007, it was 50 years after he went up the mountain. Him and Tenzing Norgay. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And it's part of the story. At the end of our 10-minute chat and he was looking to go, I asked him, I said, sir, would you mind if I asked you a question? I've read your biography. Yep. He said, no, not at all. And I said, I've always, if I ever met you, I'd always want to know, did you ever look up and think I'm not going to get there? He said, Nick, believe it or not, I never, ever looked up at the top of the mountain. He said, had I done that, I suspect there's a good chance I wouldn't get there. But what I knew I could do because of the guy you just mentioned, the team I had around me, yep. 
my training, my discipline, my courage, my focus, I knew I could keep on putting my left foot in front of my right. And if I kept on putting my left foot in front of my right, I knew I'd get to the top of the mountain, to the top of Everest. And and to me, that is a great example of process. You get the process right. And I mentioned it's not just throwing your left in front of your right. It's the team, the preparation, the discipline, the courage, the focus, all those things. It's also in the man management of personalities. Yeah, absolutely, because there was a big team around them. And some big personalities around them. For sure. How did you go about doing that? Because you, you do have some big personalities and absolute superstars. Oh, look, yeah, I... I um, That's got to be one of the hardest parts of being the skipper, isn't it? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, you, you put me on the spot there, and I, I'm not sure how to answer that because I just think it was part of natural leadership and um, and knowing how to deal with people and knowing that your position was warranted in the team and the people respected you for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, I think if if you know you've got respect from your teammates, and that comes from track record. Yep. You know, you, you've got to have a track record of consistency as a leader and as a player and um, as, and as someone who enjoys, you know, the, the touring aspect and friendship. And, you know, when we tour, I, I would always make sure that we left a legacy. I'd always make sure that we, we, we looked after a not-for-profit. I was always pretty tough on the guys in relation to – you know, sometimes on a day off, the guys just wanted to relax and do their own thing. And sometimes I say, guys, we're actually going to go to this lawn bowling club in New Zealand because we've been invited. Yep. You mightn't like it, but we're going to go along and support them and help them. And the guys might, you know, a couple of the guys might say, oh, you know, far, give me a break. And, you know, we don't want to do that. But at the end of the day, they'd have a fantastic time. And to me, leadership rugby touring was about leaving legacies and, um, and it was very much the way you behaved when you either pulled on that gold jersey or you pulled on that bottle green blazer that we used to hate, but we were so respectful of. Yes. I mean, to me, the way we conducted ourselves was critical. And so I, I think that, you know, hopefully, ask my teammates, but hopefully they respected the way I led that team on and off the field. Grand slam. Has it been done again? Pretty special team. Yeah, it was a wonderful time. Great memories. I mean, we played 18 matches on that trip. We scored 12 tries in those four tests, conceded one. Mark Eller got one in every try. I mean, I had the wonderful privilege of playing my first four tests alongside Mark, and then he retired. So for many, many reasons, it was just a wonderful memory. It was a great team. It was very well coached by Jones, very well led by Andrew Slack, but we had such a fantastic time. And I think we were great ambassadors for the country, you know, in many, many ways. Uh, People... People still talk about that team when you go to the UK and Ireland. People who are my age and older, yeah. they still talk about that amazing team. And uh, to play my first four tests in that team, uh, something you can never get taken from you. It was, for many reasons, it was just hugely special. you got to remember I was playing second division rugby the year before. That's right. For Sydney University. So, so that did- tour gave me an opportunity mainly to meet my teammates. You know, I remember saying to Mark Eller before the first test, your number 10s normally either want it a bit higher, a bit lower. They sometimes want to run onto it a bit quicker or what have you. I remember saying to Mark, because we were roomed together at the St. Irmans Hotel in Westminster, I said, Mark, we've only played a handful of games together. Um, where do you prefer the ball? You know, on your hip, on your in front? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Nick, you, you do the chucking, I'll do the catching. You know, he was that 
layback sort of a person, you know, that taking the pressure off me. You just do the passing. Don't worry about the catching. I'll, I'll, I'll catch it wherever you put it. He was that good a player. How nervous were you? I knew I'd done the work. But had you done enough for that time? Yeah, look, I'd I'd played four years of first grade. Um, Yeah, I just was was confident. But you got to remember, I didn't have the same responsibility. You know, when you become captain, a lot more responsibility, decision-making and all that. But by that time, you're experienced and it comes naturally. My job in that first match against England- Get the ball to Ella. Get the ball to Mark as efficiently and as quickly as I could. That was my job. It was the same in Ireland. When we got to Cardiff, the conditions were lousy. That's when my game as a scrum half had to change because we had to play strategically. We scored two or three of our tries down the short side. Yeah, right. And I played the house down because I had to step up. And I knew it was a greater responsibility because I had to control the game a lot more. You couldn't play quite the expansive game yep. that we had previously. And when Mark takes over, yeah. So no, but it was a it was it was a great great memory. The actual captaincy itself, Nick. What's the weight of the responsibility? Yeah, I I I, I don't think I ever thought about that like during that? the captaincy. Yeah. Um, you know when you're playing for your nation. You know when there's a lot of lot of people that support you and are watching on TV that it's fair income, but why on earth would you doubt that it's fair income when you have that great responsibility pulling on that jersey, building out your anthem, playing in front of thousands at the stadium, and you know hopefully millions watching on TV. Um, but again, I always come back to you if you know that you've got leadership qualities, if you know that you've done the preparation, you can go out there and be confident and as I say down the torpedoes full speed ahead just go out and let it all come out let it all come out in in the way you strut your stuff and the way you lead your team and the decision making that you make and um and just get on with it what's changed in the role of captaincy from the amateur to the professional I don't know I haven't been a part of the professional you don't reckon I reckon you reckon, the one, reckon the your one old days you, you would have made more decisions yourself wouldn't you yeah no sure rather, because you rather, did, rather than looking to the coach or the, yeah well the no, I think I think maybe as I said to you uh, you know at the beginning of this um, podcast you know Bob and I debated argued we always got on the same page Bob and I have been great mates for a long long time um, we still are you know Ange my wife Ange and Ruth Bob's wife we we get on wonderfully you know we go down to Barrel down the Southern Highland. And, catch up but we we did agitate we did debate we did argue you know maybe when alan jones was coach um Mm. my first coach people wouldn't take him on as much i don't know because i mean alan you know he was he was very much an authoritarian but he was a great coach in the same time but i reckon to answer your question greg as well as i can i think the modern day captain you know depending on how strong they are probably don't question the coach's ways as much I mean, I think that's perhaps a natural assumption. That's why, in my view, you often get robotic play because people are scared to make a mistake. They worry too much about their next contract, and so you just get all this one-up stuff off rucks and malls. They don't want to make a mistake. They're not prepared to, you know, sort of deviate out of the game plan. They don't want to make a mistake because, um, you know, that'll be marked against them. So what changed for you? You're sitting at the front of the plane. Well, Bob was sitting at the front of the plane. You've had, like you said, a few glasses of wine. He said, don't say anything to the press. We weren't sitting at the front of the plane. Okay, we always flew economy. <laughs> okay. All right, things have changed then. Yeah. Where did the confidence come back and how did it come back? I didn't lose confidence. Um, sometimes 
Sometimes I might lose some – oh, you mean as captain. Okay. Sometimes yeah. I might lose confidence as a number nine. I worked out how quickly to get that back because it's really critical to get it back. I, a guy who's 15 years older than me who was a great number nine at Sydney University, I would just say, Johnny, can I bring four balls down a number one oval? I just want you to look over my passing and my technique and all that. And we might spend an hour down there and going through it. And as soon as he gave me a tick in the box, he said, Nick, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead, go for it. It's perfect. That's how I would get my technique, passing, play confidence back. In relation to the team, I just continue to work really hard. And as a leader, I just continue to work hard. We worked on building that culture yep. in 1990. And um, yeah, going back to the, the, the tour of New Zealand you spoke about, after mm. the loss in Christchurch, then the loss in Auckland, yeah, there was pressure. Bob felt it coming from you know a, a Queensland coach that wanted to usurp him, and I felt it coming from a a Queensland player that wanted to usurp me. There was a little bit of a political play on, there's no doubt. But when we got over the line in Wellington, we're off to the races. I knew then and that day, that night, that we had the edge on New Zealand. So what changed for that game, you think? You just got done. You just been done in the last two. I actually had lunch with Richard Hadley a couple yeah. of days before. Michael yeah. Liner was there. And he, talked, he just talked about um, – there was a guy who was knighted over there who was a big property tycoon who I knew well and Michael Liner ended up working for, but he put us together with Richard. And I just remember him speaking about the positivity and about just being really positive and just filling the changing room with before you go out there with with win. And we did. And and we went out there and played the house down and I think we won about 21, 9 or 10. Yeah. But I knew from there that with a young team going forward, you know, the likes of Kearns, Daly, McKenzie, Willie O, John Eels wasn't in the team yet, no. Tim Horan, Jason Little, Rob Edgerton, that we're only going to get better. Um, I think that they made some mistakes in their leadership selection. They dropped Buck Shelford. Yes. I won't go into Huge. too much about that, but I yeah. think that played in our hands. Yep. I mean, we we played the next year, 1991, two matches for the Bledisloe. Mm. We beat them at the Sydney Football Stadium about a similar score, 22-10. Rob Edgerton plucked a ball out of John Kerwin's hands. It was a fantastic win. We went over to win the Bledisloe to Eden Park in Auckland. We lost 6-3. Mike Liner would, it's not a criticism, but he had a bad day at the office. He, he missed five shots for goal. And I was in Auckland about two months ago, Greg, and I'm remember going into the city with a guy that is a good mate. And as we drove from the airport into the CBD of Auckland, we drove past the Ellerslie race course. And two months ago, I said, mate, that's where we won the World Cup in 91. He said, what are you talking about? That's where we had our after-match dinner. And when we lost 6-3. Mm -hmm. So the All Blacks had retained the Bledisloe. We'd lost it again as in it was one all, but they yep. retained it. Yep. And we have, after every match, what we call a happy hour, but that wasn't very happy that particular evening before the dinner. And I'll never forget when we got in a group at the end of that happy hour before we went to the after-match dinner, and I just remember saying to the guys, do not forget the feeling that we have now because I think there's a good chance that we'll play these guys again in two months in the World Cup in a knockout match like we did in the semifinal yep. in Dublin. I said, bottle the way you feel now. 
And I knew that when we played them in the semi-final, we'd smash them because of that disappointment. So you've got to, you know, leadership building teams is about learning from your mistakes, about remembering things, about, as I said, bottling that experience. The semi-final at Dublin, Lansdowne Road, was arguably one of the best games I was ever involved in. You still had a dodgy knee? It was fine that day. Okay. Yeah. I jarred it against Ireland. I buggered it against Samoa in right. a pool game. Yep. I jarred it. As it turned out, I probably could have stayed on against Ireland, but I thought I'd buggered it again. It was just jarred. Yep. And literally within two minutes of coming off, it was okay. So, you know, probably one of the few times that Greg Craig, my physio, who was a genius, um, maybe got it wrong. But no, no, it was, it was absolutely fine for the last, well, the next two games, the semi and the final. And you're playing the mighty All Blacks. Yeah, no, no, but I knew we had the measure. It was from Wellington the year before, and it was from the Eden Park loss and bottling the disappointment, the absolute bitter disappointment, and we're on a hot tin roof. Not normally, Greg, what, what happens when you you have your team meetings before you go to the game? We have a backs meeting, we have a forwards meeting. You then get together for a team meeting. The coach speaks maybe for five, ten minutes, you know, about the way we want to go about it, you know, the tactics and what have you. And then I speak as a captain before we hop on the bus. Um, there was absolutely nothing to be said that day. I hardly said one thing. The, all, all I did was read a letter that we got from a guy that we knew who was loved rugby, loved the essence and the spirit of the Wallabies. He sent us a letter talking about how he perceived the team and the spirit within the team. All I had to do was read. I said, guys, let's get on the bus. There was nothing to be said in the change room. We were on a hot tin roof. What are the letters saying, Nick? Oh, look, it was from a wonderful guy called Matt Laffin. His father was um, was my New South Wales coach, Dick Laffin. Matt was born and quickly developed this. This It was like a spina bifida disease, so he lived in a wheelchair. Right. You know, when I was on the council of the city of Sydney and I, I, I chaired the access committee, all aspects of accessibility around the city, you know, getting into buildings, accessibility, it's for the hearing impaired, for the sight impaired. I quadrupled the budget. Matt was the first guy I put onto my committee. Right. And he would take me out in the city and just show me areas where he didn't have accessibility. And we changed that. Matt was an amazing guy. You know, as Peter Fitzsimon said in a eulogy, he passed away in about 2007. My first daughter was lucky to have him as a godfather. But Fitz in the eulogy said he was dealt a pair of black twos and he played them like red aces. That's how he lived his life. But he just wrote us a letter about a page and a half and just talked about how he loved the wallabies. He loved the example we said. He loved our spirit and all that sort of stuff and and what we were doing during that World Cup. And I just read it and I said, on the bus, guys, let's go. Let's go and do this stuff. And, um, yeah, it was it was a big day. It was one of the greatest games, as I said, the 65 tests I played that, um, you know, both in attack and defence. It was terrific. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Nick Farr-Jones. In our next episode, I sit down with Scott White, Chief Executive Officer of Viva Energy Australia. It's easily achievable for us. I mean, I think we, we talk about uh, our scope one and two emissions, which is the emissions that we create as an organisation. And we said for our non-refining business that will be net zero by 2030, so that's retail and commercial and head offices and our terminals, etc., Refinery, we we haven't set that time frame. We've said net zero across the whole business by 2050, and that's because the nature of the refining business is it's hugely emissions intensive. 
Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. How much in the game, Nick, when you're playing the game, from the strategy and the preparation, the drilling, etc., actually comes out to play? The actual strategy to look, look, we to playing we, what's in front yeah, of you. Look, look, we practice moves and all that. Yeah, and and you 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 play those. Yeah, and you, and you know, you know the way that the All Blacks will defend. And you know, I mean, that team we would have often two major strategies around beating the All Blacks. Grant Fox in number ten. If he played well, if he was given time and space, and he played well, we yep. lose. Yep. Okay, so. A lot of our game plan was around, and this is simplifying things, but denying Fox the ball. time and space. Yep. Time and space. Yep. You know, you've got to get in his Crowding. face. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And the other guy that was really instrumental in that tremendous success that the All Blacks had in the late 80s, you know, particularly the 87 World Cup, the inaugural World Cup, through to the mid-90s was Michael Jones. And, and he had an amazing speed, mobility, and if he was in – Liner's face, Horan's face, Little's face, we lost again. So a lot of our tactics are around putting him in deep, dark places, making sure he makes a lot of tackles and he gets buried at the bottom of malls. So he's not in our guy's face and we can play. We have space. Game's pretty simple. It's about creating space yep. and it's about denying space in defence. And so th- 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 they were simple tactics, but around that, I think one of the great things of the amateur days, again, and the way Bob coached and also Alan Jones, you got the best players in the country. Give them a license. Give them a license. I mean, I often talk about, you know, when Campo made that mistake, I I spoke briefly about it, the third test against the Lions, the press crucified him. Yes. They said, you, you know, even the great Andrew Slack, my first captain as a journalist said, you can't pick him again. He's too much of a liability. This grew and grew and grew after that Saturday test, and eventually, I think on the Friday, I, as a young captain, wrote an open letter to papers. It was published in most. It's it's in Fitzsimons' biography of me. But basically what I said in defense of Campo, because he was one of the greatest players I ever played with, and we had a great combination. I said, Campo, you made a mistake on Saturday, and I'm sure you'll learn from it, but it didn't cost us the game. We had 79 other minutes in which to win that game. And I said, mate, if I was picking the team tomorrow, you would be the first player that I would select. And most importantly, without shackles. If Bob Dwyer had have said to Campo, Campo, I'm going to give you another go, but thou shalt kick out on the full in your 22, you would have destroyed the essence of what the guy was about. He was always prepared to walk the tightrope. He was always prepared, or he was never going to die wondering if he could beat the tackle. And I think I'm sure I was vindicated in 91 when, without doubt, he was the player of that tournament. You know, you probably don't know, Greg, but at the end of every Rugby World Cup, all the journalists that cover it, print and television, they get to vote player of the tournament. And in 91, and we're talking about a winger, a number 11, there was about 150 journalists. It was unanimous. Yeah, Really? Absolutely. If you think yeah. back to what he did yes. against Ireland, against particularly New Zealand, even against England in the final, when he didn't get many chances because we didn't get a lot of possession, but even in the pool matches, he was phenomenal. And so, again, I go back to that vindication about giving people a license. You know, I think in business, really, really important to create a culture within your business, particularly for young people. Yep. 
that allows people to make a mistake. If you make a million mistakes, you don't get a jersey. You, you know, you get warned and you, you learn hopefully from it. But I think in business, it's really important to give young people a chance to chance their arm, to think outside the square, to do things differently. And you're going to make mistakes. You know, when you walk the tightrope of life, you, of course you're going to, but it's about learning. It's about experience. It's about having a crack, which I think is a really important thing. So when you beat the All Blacks and you got the English next for the final, this is the very peak of it, were we going to win in your mind? Yeah. No, no doubt? Oh, look, we had to play well. We had to turn up. You know, there's a lot of things that we had to go through. There's a lot of things that were different, you know, that you had to adjust to. I mean, normally you get that knock on the door, you go out, you sing a couple of anthems and you're into it unless you're facing a haka. We had 18 minutes between the knock on the door and kickoff, so things were different. You know, you couldn't get – the forwards couldn't get too fired up and aroused and, you know, head-butting walls. I mean, I had to introduce the team to the Queen um, and the reserves, Will Carling had to do the same and then you had the anthem. So there was 18 minutes. There was a lot of things different, but I just knew we'd done the work and, the you know, we, we had done the work and, and that's why I had the, the level of confidence I did. You've always been confident? Yeah, to an extent. Um to an extent, I think so. I get confident because of the people around me. I mean, I, pl- I, I did individual sports, as I said, mm. when I was young, and, and I was always, because I know I'd done the work. But, you know, you, you talk about individually and corporately, collectively. And, you know, we had prepared the team and we, I mean, you know, when I talked about changing the culture and about yep. understanding process, we'd, we'd developed that over two years. And we'd become a very consistent team. You know, when we lost that 6-3 match in Eden Park, I was ropeable. I was pissed off. Not many people, Australian captains, would be absolutely pissed off when you lose to New Zealand by three points. But that's where we'd got to, mm. our level of confidence. Yep. That we sh- every time we go out there and strut our stuff, we're expected to win. So how much is it up here? Oh, look, there's a lot of that. But that comes from the hard work. You know, and and look at the end of the day, I think I think you've got to have a level of intelligence. You've got to have a level of experience. I I, I often think. I mean, I'd love to have a dollar, Greg, for every time someone said to me in the last thirty years. So, what did you do after rugby? And you must be, you know, pissed off. You missed out on the money on the professional side of the game because it came along two or three years after I stopped. And I look those people squarely in the eyes and say, I, I think I was the last of the lucky ones. Mm. Because I went to, I was able to study at Sydney Uni and do law. I had a day job. When I got, well, I didn't get carried out in my coffin. I, my rugby coffin, I stopped on my terms. I had a couple of young kids. I wanted to get on with other things in life. I'd, you know, sort of apart from not beating the Lions, everything else we'd achieved, you know, particularly when South Africa came back into the landscape because they weren't a part of the 91 World Cup. But the great thing about amateurism was you had a day job. Um, we kicked off at three o'clock, you know, back in those days. Why is that important? Because, you know, I lived in France for four years. It's what they call the troisième mi-temps, the third half. Yes. So you kick off at three o'clock. At five o'clock, you're in their changing room or they're in your changing room and you're having a beer and you're getting to know people and you're going to a, a dinner with them after. So you're not going to press conferences at 10 o'clock. Um, it's the great tours. You know, my first tour in 84 was 10 weeks. You know, we only played seven test matches a year on average. Um you know, those those tours were fantastic because you got out of major cities. Nowadays, they're playing 14 tests to get the recurrent income that pays for the professional game. 
Yeah, they go on tour for four weeks. They might go to Dublin, Edinburgh, London, Cardiff, maybe Paris. They don't get outside. And I think those great tours that I experienced, you know, those 10-week tours, 18 matches, you know, they're just you, – you, you can't – you can't trade anything for those experiences you know so there was all those things that i loved about the amateur game and all the mateship and camaraderie and friendship not just with your teammates but people that you played against around the world is team spirit different you think these days i don't know i I, i'm 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 not on the inner sanctum so i really don't want to comment i'd like to think it would be i'd like to think that there's the same sacrifice there's the same spirit there but I, i i just don't know one thing that makes my antenna vibrate nervously is the influence of player agents and whether they're really looking after the long-term interests of their clients or whether they're just looking at what's going to pay the most and then they get their cut you know whether it's to run off to japan or france or the uk because they're going to pay the most and is that best for their client Uh, i sometimes doubt that that's the right thing i mean i see some of these great young schoolboys that end up going to league and I wish I could speak to their parents and sit down and, and have a coffee or a beer and and tell them about my experience and everything the rugby had to offer because there's a lot of things that money can never pay for. I guess one of the questions Nick I was going to ask you about is how far is too far in the effort to win? Do you mean in relation to drugs and Correct. Oh, look, just play by the laws. Play by the laws. I mean, I, I've absolutely always, I, I would never, ever contemplate any of those things. Why would you need to? I mean, I, I, Greg, I've never been in a gymnasium in my life. Okay. It might surprise you. Yeah, it does. But I was absolutely equipped physically, strength-wise, to play and excel at the, my position. You know, you do it different ways. But but I, I just I just don't – I never bought into that, the need to mm-hmm. go into a and do weights. I was super fit all the time. And I did a lot of using my own body weight to get the strength that I needed to play. So I've never been one who's needed even to think about enhancements or anything like that. And I'm pretty sure none of my teammates would have back then. So when did you decide, Nick, that I've got an opportunity to get to the top in rugby? What age did oh, it? Mate, when did I, it click I didn't in? Really? I mean, because you, you didn't come. I love sport. Yeah. I didn't play first fifteen at my school. So were you a natural hard work? Where would you put it? Yeah, all? I was absolutely natural at hard work. But you've got to remember, Greg, back at school, I played a lot of sport. Yep. When I went to Sydney University, most of those other sports got carved off because of lack of time. Yep. I got picked at a very young age, 18, to play first grade for Sydney University. I was alongside people like Michael Hawker and a few other Wallabies. When all those other sports got carved off and I grew a bit, all of a sudden I was just a regular selection in first grade. I started to play the house down. I saw my first rugby test the year before I played one. I went out and watched Australia play Argentina in 1983 at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Right. And the next year I'm playing in one. So I never really had a a huge ambition to be a wallaby. But one thing I did have a strong desire for was to never die wondering how good I could be. And it was from that that led naturally to pulling on the gold jersey. Where did that come from? Did that come from mum and dad? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and, And my grandfather... I see it very much in my eldest daughter. She absolutely excels in investment and finance. She's only 31. Um, She had four years with JP Morgan, one year in New York. She now works in 
one of Australia's largest hedge funds, but she has my absolute drive when it comes to business that I had in sport. I've never quite had that same drive and focus in business, albeit I've loved business. I've loved everything I've done in business. Um, but I love being around a good team and being doing my job and working out exactly where I fit into that team within a business environment. But I see in my eldest daughter that absolute drive that I had in sport. Absolutely. And supported at school? There was a special teacher at school that looked after you? Yeah, there was a couple. One guy, and I've, I gave eulogies at both their funerals. Yeah. Um, my first rugby coach, who was my geography teacher, a guy called Clive Woosnam, Welshman. He was in the Sydney Welsh Choir. Um, being a Welshman, he loved rugby. But he was the first guy when I turned up and I said, where are the round balls? Because I played soccer when I was a young kid in the Shire. Yep. He said, Nick, at Newington, we don't play with round balls. We play with this. And I said, where do I go? Where's my position? He said, it's easy. The littlest kid is number nine jersey. But he was he was a wonderful man. And and then there was a guy called Barry Rex, who was my maths teacher. But he, he was basically my mentor in athletics. And um, we did all the tactics and how to win an 800 metres and a 1,500 metres at the GPS. When the final whistle blew and we've won the World Cup, I'm sure you've been asked this a thousand times, but what actually is the feeling? Oh, look, look, I think it was just, I was exhausted physically and mentally. I, I was a little bit unwell beforehand. I think when all the pressure, you know, came on and the, the only times I get crook, Greg, uh, when I'm hugely under pressure. And on the Wednesday before the final, you know, I was in bed. Oh, right. yeah. And and it was, I, I knew it was just because of, and I don't care, it's very irregular. But the night of the final, we were at a 1,500-people dinner in downtown London, you know, one of those stuffy, hot winter nights. And I ended up in the toilet, and this is about 8.30, and I had to speak around 9 o'clock. And I went out to my vice captain, Michael Liner, and I said, Noddy, I've just been really, really crook. i got to get out of here. And our hotel was about an hour out of town, and... um I said, Noddy, you're going to have to take over the speaking tonight. And Noddy'd been on the grog, you know, from celebrating. And um, he said, no, I can't do that, Nick. I said, well, mate, I'm out of here. You're going to have to. I was the only guy who was sober the next day, effectively, because I was crook again. Okay. So you asked me the question, what was it like? Yeah. It was relief because we'd worked our asses off. We'd worked so damn hard. It was so important to me because I knew it was my last roll of the dice for World Cups that to actually achieve what we deserve to achieve as the best rugby team in the world, it was just relief. As you get further away from it, you know, we're now 31 years, you have different feelings and what have you. But at the time, it was just, thank God we got there. You know, it's, it was, yeah, it was a lot of pressure. You asked me about pressure before. I knew we could do it. I was confident we'd win. But you still got to do it. Nick, at the end of the day, this conversation is around leadership. Are you impressed in why you see people conduct themselves, the leaders of today, in sport? Oh, look, it's again, uh, that's it's a, a, big, that's a big, very big broad question. question. I know yeah. that. Yeah, generally, I, I think a lot of them do. Whether it's whether it's um, in in administration or on the field, um, yeah. I mean, we can all be critical and all that, but let's remember that we're all fallible. That's why a guy hung on the cross because we all bugger up. I mean, it's a it's a very broad question, Greg. If you ask me a specific question on a specific person, I probably wouldn't comment because it's it's going publicly. But mm. you know, you you have your great leaders out there that you're full of admiration, and and you have some people that 
that um, behave shabbily and don't make good decisions. And you often see that they're self-interested rather than team interested and what have you. But again, I don't want to be too critical because, you know, I don't have a white halo around my head. You know, they're, they're, if I go back on my days as, as a leader of a sporting team, mm. I didn't make every step perfectly. Uh, I didn't do everything right. I had my cock-ups. Um, so I, I just, I think two really important qualities, humility, which I'd like to think I've got a little bit of. And, and I say that both individually and corporately because I've never, ever got carried away with the success of my team. And I'm always so thankful for the opportunities that were given. And and sometimes I'm reminded about how we impacted people, and I'm so thankful about that, even without sort of having remembered it or thinking about it. And the other quality, I, I suppose, is leaving a legacy. And, and my team definitely left a legacy. You know, I still get people coming up to me and just talking about those days when they so much loved the game, they loved the individuals. They, you know, that day when we had the ticker tape parade, yes. I tried to get it called off. Why? Up George Street, because I thought no one would turn up. I called Nick Griner, who was the then Premier. <laughs> right. I thought 50 people would turn up, my parents included. <laughs> and they reckon there was 130,000. So when you're a long way away, you know, 23,000 miles or whatever it was, kilometres, you don't understand the support you're getting, even though we got thousands of faxes. You just don't understand the way that 91 win influenced people who loved rugby and even didn't know much about rugby. They reckon 130,000 people turned up between Circular Key and Town Hall. I mean, remember, they were 10 deep. The legacy was important, and I'm very proud of that. So tell me back again. You win the World Cup, Nick. Is that the greatest moment in your sporting achievements? Oh, look, I think it, it'll be chiselled on my rugby tombstone. Yeah, or is there anything that we don't know about in the deepest, darkest hours where you're training by yourself and you sit back and say, if I didn't get myself through that, that was my greatest moment. Is there oh, anything- look, I think that win in Wellington was critical. Um, you know, what were the most important games that I played in that that Wellington win was critical, that when South Africa opened up and we beat them 26-3 at, at Newlands in Cape Town. The pressure on us in 92 was unbelievable. You know, Mandela was released in 90. F.W. de Klerk, the then president, declared, I think in about March of 92, that he was going to have democratic elections for the first time in 94. So the African National Congress agreed to opening up cricket and and rugby, and we toured simultaneously with the All Blacks. But I'll never forget the pressure that I felt as a captain, the Afrikaners largely, okay? So the, the people, the Dutch who loved yep. rugby, the number of times they'd come up and say effectively something like, Nick, congratulations on winning what you perceived to be a World Cup last year, but we weren't a part of it, so you've won nothing. And the pressure that I felt in playing them after their hiatus um, was immense. But then to beat them by a record score in the history of Springbok rugby, they'd never lost by 23 points, was one of the great feelings that I had. It was just sensational. I actually decided, um, and I told mum and dad that night, and I wrote them a letter and gave, I think, mum the Krugerrand that I got from Danny Craven and dad the touch judge flag just to thank them for their great support. Mum missed one test that I ever played. Dad missed about four. But I decided that before the matches, it was going to be my last game. Um, I just I just wanted to get the job done. And The scrum half, Peter Slattery got injured the next year and um, and I played four more tests. So the All Blacks and three against the Springboks when they toured Australia. And what's your reflections on that now? Best thing you did? Play the four yeah, more to, tests? Yeah, to come back oh, again. Look, look, 
I, I got a call from the coaches and from the team leaders, and, yeah. and they said, yeah, would you come back? Absolutely. I mean, to bow out in our country, to win the series, you know, in great style against the Springboks was was a nice way to go out. But, you know, that was a good day at the Sydney Football Stadium in front of my family, you know, my wife and my two girls. It was terrific. You've met some very interesting people during your career. Do you want to share some some insights of these <laughs> leaders? You know, you've met the Queen, you've met Mandela, you've met you know, well-known dignitaries. What's impressed you? Um Look, I, yeah, just the opportunity that rugby gives you. I mean, we went to the Palace in 84, 88, 91. Obviously, I received the cup from her and um, beforehand. I, I, I always remember getting the invitation to go to the Palace for lunch in 98. You know, we've just sadly commemorated the 25th anniversary of Princess Di's passing in Paris. And, you know, I remember that day, 31 August 97 very well. I mean, we were living in Paris. We went to church that morning as we did in the center of Paris and the Uniting Church and there were cameras everywhere. And um, it so turned out that our minister had to do the last rites for Diana and she passed away about 4 a.m. That's right, yeah. But I think when I recollect on that, um, and I have so much admiration for the Queen, but I think her only mistake that I can remember well, she went totally underground for various reasons. You know, she passed away with, you know, I don't need to go under the circumstances. Yep. She was divorced from or separated from her husband. Um, and the Queen went underground. I think she went up to Balmoral and wasn't seen for four months. Yep. And not just Britain, but, the, you know, the Commonwealth were calling out for her, you know, don't you have a response and a comment? And then she finally turned up at the um, Kensington Palace and right. saw that floral. Anyway. She later decided, or the her staff decided, that she had to be more transparent. And so every month, she invited six people for you know nondescript people for lunch. And I got invited in '98, and it was fantastic. We had just such a wonderful lunch and a great catch up. And um, you know, I'd met a couple of her children, and we just it was just such a relaxed, enjoyable conversation. I did get cornered by her communications manager at the end because we had, of course, had the referendum the next year, 99, yeah, right. on, on the monarchy or the republic. And um, and they wanted to know what was my view. You know, what what did I think the Queen should do in relation to, you know, building support? And I was pretty forthright. Um, but I remember, you know, oh, you back were, then, yeah. yeah, look, I was. I said, look, I don't think the Queen or her husband should come down. She was on the nose. It's hard to remember, yeah, I remember because it, yeah. we all love her so much. Yeah, yeah. And we were in so much admiration, but she was totally on the nose. I said, if, you, if you're seriously trying to get support from Aussies, Send the grandchildren, you know, because we all had that amazing sympathy yep. from that funeral service for the grandchildren. Um, but it was an amazing experience. You, you asked me what what are some of the things. I mean, I, I think if you if you ask me along the same lines, who is the greatest mentor that I ever had, it would be Sir Nicholas Shahidi. Sadly, passed away about five six years ago, but was a great Wallaby, a great Wallaby captain, a great Wallaby president, a great businessman. But he was the guy who who was really the person behind the inaugural Rugby World Cup. And it was largely because we're losing so many players to rugby league and he thought, I have to create a global event. And he took on the Northern Hemisphere with the support of New Zealand, South Africa, France. And he finally got one vote over the line. They think it was the English, but he was, I mean, Nick Shahady was such an amazing person, a great mentor to me. He was the Lord Mayor of Sydney for a couple of years in the late 60s. Those sort of people I'll never forget. And, of course, his wonderful wife, who was our governor for 13 years, yes. still around, still doing great things. I mean, she's in her own right, Murray Bashir, one of the greatest, loveliest, nicest people that I know. 
Just from your experience in leadership, Nick, what's the sort of constant thing you see? Is it humility? Look, there's a lot of traits, but absolutely, it's vision. It's it's being able to harness the people around you and focus them and give them direction and get them all working together, um, understanding their roles within the team. You know, when I first became a lawyer, I'll, I'll always remember on the first day, 1986, going into the senior partner's office, thanking him firstly for employing me, but he knew me because my grandfather was a partner and he knew a little bit about me. And I'm, I'll never forget the first question I asked. I said, Mr. Holden, what sort of law do you think I should do? You know, would I be a good litigant? Because I enjoyed litigation. I enjoyed Rumpole of the Bailey and all oh, that. Yeah. Would I be a good commercial lawyer? Would I be a property lawyer, a family lawyer? I'll never forget his, his response. He said, Nick, don't worry about the sort of law. He said, work out what sort of person you are. He said, there's finders, minders, binders, and grinders. And I think leadership is a part of understanding exactly what you're good at not trying to be everything to everyone, but understanding that collegiately, corporately, you know, you need the right people around you, the people who love doing stuff that you're not good at, and they won't be good at the stuff you do. So, you know, I'm a more of an originator in business. You know, I'm, I'm the person who looks to do the deal, to, to structure the deal, to, to get the mandate, and then there's a whole bunch of other people that sit behind computers do the financial modding, but that's what they love. That's what they're really good at. They, they'll write the 40, 50-page credit paper. Um, I don't like sitting behind the computer so much. I've got to be out there. I've got to be striding my stuff. I've got to be meeting people. I've got to be building the relationship. Um, and so I, I think that's a part of leadership, you know, just – and also making everyone feel accountable, everyone to feel responsible, even irrespective of titles, particularly junior people. And that comes back to what I said a little while ago about allowing them to vent their opportunity that they see. They don't feel discouraged to come up with an idea, come up with a even if it's it doesn't work, even if you don't get it right. You know, there's a million things that go into that, but don't overthink it. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Don't overthink it. Let it come naturally. Remember what I said when I first became captain? Yeah, I overthought it. Because I didn't think I was justified because I thought my cab was parked seventh or eighth in the rank. You know, I was only a 26 year old guy. There was the Poitivans and yeah, these right. guys yeah. in front of me. Yeah. Geez, I'm going to have to, what, what do I need to learn? Just be natural. Let so it come out. Why did he give you the. I don't know. He never you, called you, me, remember? I know, but didn't you ever ask afterwards? Not really. No. What do you reckon you got it? He saw leadership qualities in me. He talked to people. He asked people like Dave Brockoff. Michael Hawker, uh, Rupert Rosenblum, tell me about this bloke. And he obviously watched, you know, when I was coached by Alan Jones, the way yeah. I played and the way I, you know, as a scrum half, you've got to be a natural leader. Yep. In your leadership style, when playing the game, how would you sum it up? There's, there's all different styles, and obviously you've got to adapt, got to be agile to use these, these words, but how would you sum yourself oh, up? Oh, look, I was authoritative. I was, was a good talker to referees. I was, I, I think I made my teammates comfortable. I mean, I, I've heard John Hill say many times when asked about the 91 World Cup, mm -hmm. particularly going on as a young, he was only 20 years of age, Eelsie, and he, was, he said, I was so nervous going out for the World Cup final. And he said, just before kickoff, I looked across and, you know, he's probably 30 metres from me. And he said, I spotted Nick and Nick was just smiling at me. And I've heard him say many times, so it's not me blowing my trumpet, but he just said, that relaxed me so much. 
and so I'd like to think that as I was an experienced player and the captain of the team, that when the junior guys looked at me in the way I on and off the field, that I gave them confidence, that they knew that they were part of the team, that they were, you know, sort of, yeah, make of it what you will. But to me, you know, when I when John went on to be such a great player and such a great captain that he was, yes, that I've heard him say that many times, I, I'm just very satisfied that that's the way he felt when I when we just swapped glances just before kickoff. Pressure ever get to you? Sure, sure, but it's how you handle it. And how do you? Um, having the confidence that you've done the work, that in the big moments you'll you'll get it right. The skills, the execution will will come. And when you were playing, did they have a lot of mental coaches in those days? Or <laughs> no, 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 exactly. So no, I would have I would have so laughed was, it off. Look, look, yeah, one of one of the players' you? dads. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I I didn't need it. Uh, don't get me wrong. No, I I, I understand that some people do. Yep. And I'm absolutely, it's not a criticism that they do it all because, you know, that's for them. And most individual professional players, you know, tennis players, golfers have them. That's right. Because it's part of their, you know, armory. But no, I, I didn't need it. And don't get me wrong also because I know that people go through ups and downs mentally and, and a lot of people can go through some down times and depression and all that. And yep. it's an acute thing at the moment. So I'm not laughing it off. No. It's just that, no, I never thought about it. I mean, one of our, one of my senior players, his dad was a psychiatrist in sports psychiatrist. Okay. And there was one session that we did and it was right towards the end of my career. And so I just agreed to it, but it wasn't going to happen again in the team that I led. Yeah. Make of that what you will, but (laughs) no, it was rubbish. Fair enough. But at the same time, I preface that by understand why people do it now, particularly in the professional game when they're absolutely looking to optimise their performances. And a lot of people in those lonely sports, individual sports, do go through ups and downs and do need to, you know, there's a whole bunch of ways and new ways of, you know, getting in the right headspace, you might say. Is there a real mental strain, Nick, once you call it a day? Not at all. So when you when you ultimately called it a day, what's the, what's the sensation? Is it relief? Only because we'd achieved what we had. Had we lost at Dublin when we fell behind with four minutes to go, as I said, I'd, I'd be totally frustrated because I would have known that individually and collectively we, we'd never reached our potential. I knew that was my last roll of the you know, dice for World Cups. I mean, I had to get on and you know, a couple of young kids and I, I had a business life to get on with. So, no, it's because we achieved everything apart from the lines. But I got over it because the disappointment of the Lions taught us lessons that without that disappointment, we mightn't have won two years later mm-hmm. in, in rugby's biggest prize. Moving on from rugby, mm. what's been your greatest achievement since? Oh, look, I, I'd have to say my the strength of and the love that my wife and I have for each other and, mm. and from that, the four wonderful kids that we got and their achievements and, um, yeah, just the the closeness that we have as a family. There's no doubt about that. What's Stan Tall about? Oh, uh, look, my wife, um, 10 years ago, she she was pretty badly impacted from how many funerals my two girls, who are now 31 and 29, had been to. And I probably don't have to go into the details of how those young girls died. Okay. But she thought, along with one of her good friends, that let's we've got to do something about it. It's a DGR registered not-for-profit. I chair the board. 
And we've had in that 10 years amazing growth. Um, and we've impacted so many young lives. We get 14, 15, 16-year-olds to big school events. We typically get six and a half, seven thousand 7,000 schools from right across Sydney and the environs, you know, private schools, public schools. It's the range. We, we want to make sure everyone's included. We try to get year groups. We get amazing speakers, you know, who often talk about life experiences they've been through and coming out positively. And, and they are the most inspiring speakers you'll ever hear. And you know, we see the impact um, from surveys, but also the feedback from the speakers. And and it's about just filling young kids with hope, with resilience, with just understanding how bullying and online bullying can impact people, just understanding, you know, how to bounce back from disappointment, just to understand that you're not in the worst situation, that, you know, that life's not as bad as you might think. And and just, it's, it's all about that. And it's, it's looking at a better future forward. You know, during COVID, we had the opportunity to live stream. And so we now reach nationally as opposed to just the attendees. We were asked by Bronnie Taylor, who's the New South Wales Minister for Mental Health, to do three regional events, which are coming up in late October, November. That's going to be Tamworth, Dubbo, um, Pambula down in the Bega area. Yes. So it just grows and grows and grows. And we're just making an impact. And I'm really proud of what my wife's achieved. And I love supporting her because at the end of the day, I think back to that 10 years, you know, when we were having our first kids, uh, when we were married, when I was spending a lot of time on rugby tours and absolutely focused on squeezing the lemon, getting all the drops out, how she supported me. Yep. So I just really enjoy how I can support her in all the connections that I can bring in and the government support and corporate support and, you know, for a not-for-profit. So it's it's great. And I'm as I said, I'm very proud of my wife. And what have you both learned through COVID, through this process? You know, I, it, life hasn't changed dramatically for me. I've, I've been going to the office every day. I feel that I'm a central worker in the CVD. No, look, I just think it's easier for, for everything, you know, just to, to you know get out early and come back later. But look, it's been tough. I, I lost um, mum and dad in the, in the last couple of years. I mean, they both got to a good age though, you know, 87. Um, look, I think the greatest thing I've learned is that, you know, if one door closes, there's a great opportunity that another one opens. Okay. Um, I mean, people can say, you know, they use those strange words, pivot and all that sort of stuff. But to me, it's just, yes, there's been some disappointments, whether it's uh, travel, whether, and that closes down all our business opportunities sometimes because we invest and mainly lend in the global mining industry. Yep. But you've just got to be reactive. You've got to, you've got to, you know, sort of- Look at the doors that can be opened in that time. Look at the opportunities that can be had. Um, you know, my life is normally flat out with a whole bunch of things going on and events and dinners and all that. And sometimes, you know, none of us went to anything for 18 months. And yeah, you can miss that and regret that, but also use that as an opportunity. You know, what does time give you? You know, whether you want to do some reading, whether you want to do some study, whether you want to do, you know, so look at the doors that open up and don't waste it. And part of your experience when you left rugby is living in another country, isn't it? In living, France, living yeah, in no, France. Yeah, we lived in Paris. So I joined the French Investment Bank Société Générale. What did it bring to you? Ah, uh, look, everything from mateship to, you know, getting back to that finders, miners, binders and grinders. Because uh, to be honest, I went over there, couldn't speak the language, didn't understand the culture, hadn't studied commerce or, or economics. Three, four months into, you know, taking a young family away from Sydney, where I was very comfortable, where there's a million things happening, where I was in strong demand for a lot of things, Yes. to going over there, where particularly in Paris, you could pick your nose on the train, no one knew who you were, 
but it was challenging at first. And I really had to work hard and I had to work out, yeah, I'm a finder and a minder. I have to surround myself with people to build a business, which we did. We opened a physical gold desk, did a lot of work in South Africa, particularly as the biggest you know, gold producer back in the 90s. Yes. Helped set up the mining finance team in London, which was specific on mining finance with all the technical skills required. Um, so, we, we look, we ended up having a, a great four years there. But what took us home, and I ran the mining finance team in Sydney for 10 years after that, was I didn't want my kids to miss out on their grandparents. You know, my dad was a big smoker in his life. I, I was amazed he got to 87. My father-in-law in 1983, when I met my wife, had his first triple bypass surgery. So what drove us back to Sydney, and we love coming back, of course, to family, was didn't want the kids to miss out on grandparents. But thankfully, they, they lived for another 20 years. Politics, Nick? Look, I've been invited a couple of times. Come on. To safe seats. Yeah. Oh, look, I, you know. How, Bruce, close, how close were you? Well, Bruce Baird called me in 2007. I'm from the Shire. You know, Bruce was in Cook, where, of course, yeah. Scott Morrison ended yeah. up. You know, he said, I've got the Prime Minister's endorsement. I said, Bruce, I was in South Africa at the time. I said, mate, I'm putting four kids through private school. That's my first excuse. It's 3 a.m. over here where you've called me. I'll call you back tomorrow and give you a bunch of others. And then I got a call from where I live now in Linfield when, when the then MP stood down and similar story. I'm a big believer that I can hopefully make an impact away from politics in other areas. So I've done a lot of not-for-profit work over the years. Um, I was on the City of Sydney Council for four years, but yes. uh, but yeah, no, I, I just don't want 24-7 to be covering my back. No, I was just wondering, Nick, what your thoughts are regarding the, sort of the political discourse and debate that we're having these, this day and age. It's very personalised. Yeah, no, it is. It is. And, that, and that's, I don't like that. Look, I, I'm interested in politics. I, I enjoy, I don't watch a lot of TV but and get to read some papers, but I do enjoy listening to, to radio and I'm interested in the political debate. And yeah, I have pretty strong views, no doubt about that. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, no, I think I it's important too. But um, yeah, look, I, I wouldn't disagree. I, I, I think the attack on people and, and not just you know being able to elevate eloquently your views, your strong views, and being able to back it up with strong argument. Yeah, I think we're we're really lacking in that. And um, yeah, it's 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 really disappointing. I mean, I. I I won't go into any particular people, but whether praiseworthy or negatively, but no doubt there's too much of that. And I'd love to see really strong leaders, you know, who can just get on without attacking the opposition. I, mean, I went to a Sydney business forum yesterday hmm. and Chris Mint spoke. And, you know, I've met Chris. Yeah. And one of the things I was really impressed with is he actually spoke about how his, when he became leader going through the COVID period. Yeah. He led his party in not attacking then Gladys Berejiklian on, on particularly health decisions, the need to be bipartisan in a lot of those decisions which were being guided by the health advice yes. that the Premier was receiving and understanding what a precarious situation it was and how a lot of people were very troubled and making those decisions and leading his party that we are not going to attack unless there's a clear situation where we disagree with a decision that one of the ministers has made within the governing party. I was very impressed with that because we just haven't seen enough of that sort of stuff where you get bipartisan support. Yeah, look, I think it seems to be that Australians are calling it for that type of leadership, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and there's, there's no doubt about that. And um, yeah, and that's, that's what I like. 
and and again, it's it's the attack that comes on sporting leaders and sporting coaches. Well, what about just on just on that? This might be a little bit topical, but it's interesting. The likes of Israel Flau. Oh, look, look, Israel. He came over to see me. Someone said to come over, and yes, yeah, the first time I met him, he okay. came over to my house. Yep. And we had a couple of hours together, and so I fully understood as as someone who's a strong believer myself. I, I'm right. a churchgoer. Yep. I understand, and I read the Bible every day. At least I try to, and I, I, you know, and and so it's my faith, you know, and and my wife's the same. It's a very important part of our life. So I fully understood. Absolutely. You know, it was shortly after I think there was a a decision made in the Tasmanian Parliament on a gender issue, which was a really strange one. Because I asked Israel about it. What what made him put that text up or whatever you call those things? Mm. I, I'm not on social media. And he said, look, I, I was really concerned and troubled about the implications of sin. And I just wanted to let people know what the Bible said about sin and so that they understood that there were ramifications. Now, at the same time, my only criticism of Israel, but I fully understood why he did it, because he loved people. It wasn't to be critical of people. It wasn't to be, you know, those eight particular sins that I think were in that Bible verse. Yes. It was because he loved people. And so I got that, but most people didn't, because they just saw it as an absolute criticism and just saying to people that if you commit any of these sins, you're going to hell. And per se, I can understand that. I think the only problem and the only this mistake that Israel made, there's a lot of other ways to tell people about the love of Jesus Christ and God. And it's about, you know, you can go to a whole bunch of verses that talk about the love of God for mankind that he sent his only son to hang on a cross for forgiveness of sin. Yep. You know, I'd, I'd much prefer a positive thing like that than talking about the implications of, of sin. But you've got to remember that Israel's father, you know, is a bit different. You know, he ran a church and he was a bit of a, you know, sort of a lightning bolt thrower and all that sort of stuff. And and he encouraged his kid along that line. So there's probably reasons. And for that reason, I'd, I'd be slightly critical of Israel for the way he went about it. As I just said, Greg, there's much better ways to tell people about the love of God. But should they be persecuted, do you think? No, not at all. Based in a democracy, not at all. freedom of speech? Not at all. He can be criticized, but he was hung out to dry and he lost his job out of it. And I think Rugby Australia, I mean, they lost the court case and it cost them a lot of money. And I think if they had their time over again, they'd do it differently. Yeah, it's interesting to watch how that all played out, wasn't it? Sure. What's next for you, Nick? Oh, look, mate, I, I, as I said, I've just turned 60 a few months ago. Uh, I'm a grandfather. There's a lot left for me. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball and I don't really care. I live life for the next day and the next week. There's a couple of bigger plans, but um, Go on, like I want to stay busy. What's, what's, come on, what's some of those big plans? Oh, no, but the big plans are hopefully to have, you know, lots of grandchildren. Yeah. Um, to stay busy, to stay with the work I currently do, which is managing money on behalf of US investors, you know, successfully lending and investing in the global mining space. Still I love it? that because of the diversity of it, the diversity of people, the diversity of countries, the diversity of projects, the diversity of commodities. But really the connectivity in the industry and, and the interest around the, the industry and the people mainly. Um, so I've got no intention of leaving Taurus. I love the team, people that I work with. But I like the not-for-profit stuff. You know, we talked about Stand Tall. I, I, I enjoy the boards that I sit on. Um, and who knows what's around the corner? I mean, I, I lived in Paris for four years. If I was ever invited to be the ambassador in, for Australia in, in Paris, I'd think seriously about it. Because I think, unlike some of the people that we we launch into these, yes. you know, which is sometimes payback for political careers, 
you know, some of these people, they go up there and I don't think they add a lot of value. Mm. Whereas I've lived in France, they, they love sport, they love rugby, I've got great connections. You know, to me, it's about connecting countries, it's about connecting businesses, about connecting opportunities. I think I'd do a great job at that. But is that an ambition? No, not at all. But I'm just saying if something like that came up, I could think about another couple of years overseas. Nick, if you're looking back at that young man making his debut for Sydney Uni, what advice would you give him now? <laughs> I'd just do the same stuff. You know, I, I was really fortunate in my upbringing in, you know, being the middle of two boys, so I became very competitive. I loved winning. I think I was a reasonable loser too. But, but you know, again, I come back to that preparation that, that my life stood me in good stead to be able to be that person who, you know, at the age of 60, didn't die wondering how good he could be in sport. I mightn't be as good as I could have been in other areas of life, but in sport, no regrets. On that, Nick, thanks very much for your time today. Pleasure, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 